Gildan Media presents Your Coach in a Box, affordable, life-changing audio programs. The Little Book of Behavioral Investing, How Not to Be Your Own Worst Enemy, by James Montier. Narrated by Sean Pratt. Forward. Homo Mistakus. I am rather an expert on bad choices. I have made so many over the years, from unhealthy food choices to postponing exercise, today's bad choice, and yes, even regrettable investment choices. <sighs> and then I have observed so many bad choices on the part of my seven teenagers, thankfully now down to just one. But these days I get to watch my grandkids learn to navigate the world. Teenagers have a remarkable ability to make the easy choice today and postpone the hard and difficult choice until tomorrow. And some of us grow up, having perfected that ability, making even more bad choices as adults. I have interviewed hundreds of investors over the years, from small and starting out to having arrived billionaires. I am always amazed by the mistakes they make and the inventive rationale they use for having made them. As a nation and a world, we have made numerous bad choices, taken the easy road, and ended up in the worst global economic crisis in 80 years. Now we are faced with a set of difficult choices as we work our way back to a new normal. History is replete with bad choices by both individuals and nations. In the past few decades, a new science has emerged that has taken note of the fact that not only are we sometimes irrational, but we are predictably irrational. This new behavioral science has started looking at how we go about making decisions and is finding all sorts of interesting, if sometimes distressing, things about the human species. It seems that our emotions and much of our decision-making process is hardwired into our brains, developed for survival on the African savannas some 100,000 years ago. We adapted to movement, learning to make decisions quickly, because there was quite a difference, literally, life and death, between dodging dangerous lions and chasing succulent antelope. And while those survival instincts are quite useful in general, when translated into a modern world, and especially a modern investment world, they make us prone to all sorts of errors. Think of chasing momentum all too often in the hope that it will continue, and running from falling markets just as they start to turn. What works for survival in the African jungles is not as productive in the jungles of world finance. Happily, we are not just homo mistakus. If we had learned to make nothing but bad choices, our species would have been consigned to the dustbin of history a long time ago, making room for some survivors less prone to error. We clearly learned to make good choices as well, and to learn from our mistakes and even the success and wisdom of others. As I mentioned earlier, I have formally interviewed hundreds of millionaires. I am even more fascinated by choices they made that were the good and sometimes brilliant ones, and the processes they use to make them. As a human species, there is much to be admired about Homo sapiens. We are capable of great work, soaring ideas, and wonderful compassion, all the results of good choices. And behavioral science is helping us to understand how we make those choices. Even as what was once considered the foundations of finance the Efficient Market Hypothesis, CAPM, and Modern Portfolio Theory are being questioned and even blamed for much of the problems in the market. Many of us are looking to the new world of behavioral finance for answers to our investment conundrums. By understanding ourselves and the way we make decisions, we can often create our own systematic process for making the right choices. Whereas we once seemed to be adrift in an ocean of potential choices, with our emotions often dictating the final outcome, with the right tools we can learn to set a confident course to the safe port of call. 
The problem is that behavioral finance can seem a little daunting, full of studies and inferences, and not tied together very well. Until now, that is. My good friend, James Montier, who literally wrote the book on behavioral finance, called Behavioral Finance, Insights into Irrational Minds and Markets, has now put his considerable knowledge into this small tome, The Little Book of Behavioral Investing. I am no stranger to James's work. He and I worked on a lengthy chapter on behavioral finance for my book, Bullseye Investing. I thought I was familiar with the subject. But taking the little book on a plane ride was one of the best investments of reading time I have had in years. I found myself, on all too many occasions, sadly admitting to myself, that's me, and sighing, vowing to never again make that mistake. But at least I now know what to avoid, and I can work to improve my habits. This is a book that I am going to have to read often, at least annually. Thankfully, James has made the book fun and the subject interesting. His naturally wry humor comes through. Whether learning why we can't seem to sell when we should, or why we choose our price targets, James gives us a blueprint to become better investors in sixteen little chapters full of insight. No more, homo mistakus. I suggest you put this audiobook on the top of your listening pile and keep it near your desk so you can refer to it often to help keep you calm in the heat of the decision-making process. So sit back and let James help bring out your inner Spock. John Maudlin Introduction This is a book about you. You are your own worst enemy. How could I possibly write a book about you? After all, chances are we've never met, let alone that I know you well enough to write a book about you. The answer is actually very simple. You are a human being, unless the sales of this book and audiobook have managed to reach interplanetary proportions, evidence of extreme over-optimism on my part, perhaps, and we humans are all prone to stumble into mental pitfalls. This is as true in investing as it is in every other walk of life. Indeed, Ben Graham, the father of value investing, even went so far as to say, the investor's chief problem, and even his worst enemy, is likely to be himself. Evidence of this harmful investor behavior can be found in the annual Dalbar studies, which measure the actual returns achieved by investors rather than the returns from a passive index such as the S&P 500. They also capture the degree to which investors attempt to time their entry and exit to the market, among other things. The results aren't pretty. Over the last 20 years, the S&P 500 has generated just over 8% on average each year. Active managers have subtracted 1% or 2% from this, so you might be tempted to think that individual investors in equity funds would have earned a yearly 6 to 7%. However, equity fund investors have managed to reduce this to a paltry 1.9% per annum. This results from buying and selling at just about the worst possible point in time. Sure looks like Ben Graham was right. We really are our own worst enemies. The good news is that it doesn't have to be this way. We can learn to make better decisions. It isn't easy, but it is possible. The little book of behavioral investing will take you on a guided tour of the most common behavioral challenges and mental pitfalls that investors encounter and provide you with strategies to eliminate these innate traits. Along the way, we'll see how some of the world's best investors have tackled the behavioral biases that drag down investment returns, so that you hopefully will be able to learn from their experiences and go on to make superior returns and have fewer losses. The Most Important Lesson of All Whenever I teach behavioral psychology, I see the audience recognizing the mental mistakes that I am talking about. 
However, most of the time they recognize the mistake in others rather than in themselves. It is always Bill, the trader, or Pete, the portfolio manager, who illustrates the bias rather than us. We all seem to have a bias blind spot. For instance, a group of Americans were asked to assess how likely the average American was to make a particular mental error, and how likely they themselves were to make exactly the same mistake. The bias blind spot kicked in. The survey participants thought the average American was always more likely than they were to make a mental mistake. However, the evidence that has been collected over the course of the last three or four decades shows that all of us are likely to encounter mental stumbling blocks at some point. So the single most important lesson I could hope to share with anyone is that the biases and mistakes we are talking about in this audiobook are likely to affect every one of us. Why do we all suffer these behavioral biases? The answer lies in the fact that our brains have been refined by the process of evolution, just like any other feature of our existence. But remember, evolution occurs at a glacial pace, so our brains are well designed for the environment that we faced 150,000 years ago, the African savanna, but potentially poorly suited for the industrial age of 300 years ago, and perhaps even more ill-suited for the information age in which we currently live. As Douglas Adams, author of the sublime Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, said, Many were increasingly of the opinion that they'd all made a big mistake in coming down from the trees in the first place, and some said that even the trees had been a bad move, and that no one should have ever left the oceans. Leaving the trees, or perhaps the oceans, may have been our first mistake. But it certainly wasn't our last. The Power of Star Trek Psychologists have suggested that the best method of thinking about the way in which our brains work is to imagine that we have two different systems embedded within our minds. For the Trekkies out there, these two systems can perhaps be characterized by Dr. McCoy and Mr. Spock. McCoy was irrepressibly human, forever allowing his emotions to rule the day. In contrast, Spock, half-human, half-Vulcan, was determined to suppress his emotions, letting logic drive his decisions. Just in case you are the only person on this planet who has never come across Star Trek, the Vulcans were a humanoid species who were noted for their attempt to live by reason and logic— with no interference from emotion. The McCoy part of our brain, which we will call the X system, is essentially the emotional approach to decision-making. The X system is actually the default option, so all information goes first to the X system for processing. It is automatic and effortless. The judgments made by the X system are generally based on aspects such as similarity, familiarity, and proximity in time. These mental shortcuts allow the X system to deal with large amounts of information simultaneously. Effectively, the X system is a quick and dirty, satisfying system, which tries to give answers that are approximately, rather than precisely, correct. In order for the X system to believe that something is valid, it may simply need to wish that it were so. The Spock part of our brains, which we will call the C system, that's the letter C, is a more logical way of processing information. It requires a deliberate effort to actually engage this system. It attempts to follow a deductive, logical approach to problem-solving. However, it can only handle one step at a time, like any logical process. So it is a slow and serial way of dealing with information. Evidence and logic will be required to make the C system believe that something is true. Of course, we all hear this and think that we are Spock. However, the reality is that the X system handles far more of our actions than we would be comfortable to admit. In fact, 
Very often we end up trusting our initial emotional reaction, and only occasionally do we recruit the C system to review the decision. For instance, when we stub a toe on a rock or bang our head on a beam, an easy thing to do in my house, we curse the inanimate object despite the fact that it could not have done anything to avoid our own mistake. Neuroscientists have found that the parts of the brain associated with the X system are much older, evolutionarily speaking, than the parts of the brain associated with the C system. This is to say we evolved the need for emotion before we evolved the need for logic. This might sound odd, but an example should help make the point obvious. Let's pretend that I place a glass box containing a large snake on the table in front of you. I ask you to lean forward and concentrate on the snake. If it rears up, you will jump backwards, even if you aren't afraid of snakes. The reason for this reaction is that our X system reacted to keep you safe. In fact, a signal was generated the second your brain perceived the snake moving. The signal was sent on two different paths, the low road and a high road, if you like. The low road was part of the X system and sent the information straight to the amygdala, that's the brain center for fear and risk. The amygdala reacts quickly and forces the body to jump backwards. The second part of the signal, taking the high road, sent the information on a long loop around to part of the C system, which processes the information in a more conscious fashion, assessing the possible threat. This system points out that there is a layer of glass between you and the snake but you have already reacted by this time. From a survival point of view, a false positive is a better response than a false negative. Emotion is designed to trump logic. So, are you Spock or McCoy? Of course, we all use both systems at various points. Indeed, the evidence suggests that those with severely impaired X systems can't make decisions at all. They end up spending all day in bed pondering the possibilities without actually engaging in any action. However, from an investment perspective, we may well be best served by using our C system. Lucky for us, we can test how easy it is to override the X system. Shane Frederick of Yale, formerly of MIT, has designed a simple three-question test which is more powerful than any IQ test or SAT score at measuring the ability of the C system to check the output of the X system. Together, these three questions are known as the Cognitive Reflection Task, or CRT. Consider the following three questions. 1. A bat and a ball, together, cost $1.10 in total. The bat costs a dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? 2. If it takes five minutes for five machines to make five widgets, how long would it take 100 machines to make 100 widgets? And 3. In a lake, there is a patch of lily pads. Every day, the patch doubles in size. If it takes 48 days for the patch to cover the entire lake, how long will it take to cover half the lake? Now, each of these questions has an obvious but unfortunately incorrect answer, and a less obvious but nonetheless correct answer. And question number one, the quick and dirty system favors an answer of ten cents. However, a little logic shows that the correct answer is actually five cents. Let's work it out. One bat plus one ball equals a dollar and ten cents. One bat minus one ball equals one dollar. If you had two bats, that would equal $2.10. If you had one bat, it would equal $1.05. Therefore, one ball is actually five cents. And question number two, the gut reaction is often to say 100 minutes. However, with a little reflection, we can see that if it takes five machines, five minutes to produce five widgets, the output is actually one widget per machine per five minutes. As such, it would take 100 machines 
five minutes to make 100 widgets. Finally, in question three, the most common incorrect answer is to have the 48 days and say 24 days. However, if the patch doubles in size each day, the day before it covers the entire lake, it must have covered half the lake. So the correct answer is 47 days. Don't worry if you got one or all three of those questions wrong. You aren't alone. In fact, after giving the test to nearly 3,500 people, Frederick found that only 17% of them managed to get all three questions right. 33% got none right. The best-performing group were MIT students. 48% of them managed to get all three questions correct. But that is still less than half of some of the best students in the world. I've had 600 professional investors, fund managers, traders, and analysts take these questions and only 40% managed to get all three questions correct, while 10% didn't get any right. What does this tell us? It tells us that all humans are prone to decision-making using the X system, and this is often unchecked by the more logical C system. I found that the number of Frederick's questions that you get correct correlates with your general vulnerability to a whole plethora of other behavioral biases, such as loss aversion, conservatism, and impatience. Those who get zero questions right seem to suffer more pronounced examples of the biases than those who get three questions right. Just in case you got all three questions right and are now about to abandon this audiobook, I would caution that two very important biases seem to be immune to the power of the CRT. No matter how well you scored on the CRT, you are still likely to encounter a couple of specific mental pitfalls, namely over-optimism, overconfidence, and confirmatory bias. These will be explored in the coming chapters. X Unchecked When are we most likely to rely upon our X system to help us out? Psychologists have explored this question and come up with the following conditions which increase the likelihood of X system thinking. 1. When the problem is ill-structured and complex. 2. When information is incomplete, ambiguous, and changing. 3. When the goals are ill-defined, shifting, or competing. 4. When the stress is high because either time constraints and or high stakes are involved. And 5. When decisions rely upon an interaction with others. Now, I don't know about you, but pretty much every decision of any consequence that I've ever had to make has fallen into at least one or more of those categories. It certainly characterizes many of the decisions that we make when faced with an investment proposition. One of the world's greatest investors, Warren Buffett, has said that investors need to learn to control their X system. He says, Success in investing doesn't correlate with IQ once you're above the level of 100. Once you have ordinary intelligence, what you need is the temperament to control the urges that get other people into trouble in investing. But before we conclude that we have solved all of our behavioral errors, we should be aware that self-control, the ability to override our urges, is like a muscle. After use, it needs time to recharge. To illustrate this point, think about the following experiment. You are told not to eat any food for the three hours prior to the exercise, actually timed so you have to skip lunch. When you arrive at the lab, you are put into one of three groups. The first group is taken into a room where the aroma of freshly baked chocolate chip cookies is wafting around. This room contains two trays, one laid out with freshly baked chocolate chip cookies, the other full of radishes. The group is told they can eat as many radishes as they would like, but they mustn't eat the cookies. The second group is more fortunate. They too are faced with two trays, each containing the same foods as for the first group, but this group is told they can eat the cookies. The third group is taken to an empty room. After ten minutes, all the groups are collected and moved to another room to take a test. 
The test is one of those tricky ones where you are told you must trace a shape, but to do so without going over a line you have drawn before and without lifting your pen from the paper. How do you think people from each group fared in the test? Those who were forced to resist the temptation of freshly baked cookies and content themselves with radishes gave up on the test in less than half the time of those from the other two groups. They also attempted just half as many problems. Their willpower had been diminished by simply resisting the temptation of cookies. These results suggest that relying upon willpower alone is going to be tricky. Resisting the chocolate cookie that beckons to us may lead to a poor investment choice. Willpower alone is unlikely to be sufficient defense against behavioral biases. As Warren Buffett said, Investing is simple, but not easy. That is to say, it should be simple to understand how investing works effectively. You buy assets for less than their intrinsic value, and then sell when they are trading at or above their fair value. However, the gamut of behavioral bias that we display tends to prevent us from doing what we know we should do. As Seth Klarman observes, So if the entire country became securities analysts, memorized Benjamin Graham's Intelligent Investor, and regularly attended Warren Buffett's annual shareholder meetings, most people would nevertheless find themselves irresistibly drawn to hot initial public offerings momentum strategies, and investment fads. People would still find it tempting to day trade and perform technical analysis of stock charts. A country of security analysts would still overreact. In short, even the best-trained investors would make the same mistakes that investors have been making forever, and for the same immutable reason, that they cannot help it. The alternative is to ingrain better behavior into your investment approach. In the coming chapters, I will highlight some of the most destructive behavioral biases and common mental mistakes that I've seen professional investors make. I'll teach you how to recognize these mental pitfalls while exploring the underlying psychology behind the mistake. Then, I show you what you can do to try to protect your portfolio from their damaging influence on your returns. Along the way, we'll see how some of the world's best investors have striven to develop investment processes that minimize their behavioral errors. So keep listening, and we'll start our voyage into your mind. First stop, emotions, and the heat of the moment. Chapter 1. In the Heat of the Moment. Prepare, Plan, and Pre-Commit to a strategy. Emotional time travel isn't our species' forte. When asked in the cold light of day how we will behave in the future, we turn out to be very bad at imagining how we will react in the heat of the moment. This inability to predict our own future behavior under emotional strain is called an empathy gap. We all encounter empathy gaps, for instance, just after eating a large meal, you can't imagine ever being hungry again. Similarly, you should never do the supermarket shopping while hungry, as you will overbuy. Now, let's imagine you are lost in some woods. As you search through your backpack, you discover that you have forgotten to bring both food and water. Oh, the horror! Which would you regret more, not bringing the food or the water? Psychologists have asked exactly this question of two different groups and offered them a bottle of water in return for participating. One group was asked just before they started to work out at a gym. The other group was asked immediately after a workout. If people are good emotional time travelers, the timing of the questions should have no impact at all. However, this isn't the pattern uncovered by the researchers. 61% of the people who were asked before the workout thought they would regret not taking water more. However, after the workout, 92% said they would regret not taking water more. 
My all-time favorite example of an empathy gap comes from an experiment by my friend Dan Ariely and his co-author, George Lowenstein. They asked 35 men, and it had to be men for reasons that will become all too obvious, to look at pictures of sexual stimuli on a cling-film-wrapped laptop. To save the gentle listener's blushes, I have omitted the full list, but suffice it to say that acts such as spanking and bondage were included. The subjects were asked to rate how much they would enjoy each act while in a cold state in front of an experimenter in a classroom-like environment. The participants were then sent home and asked to reevaluate the pictures in the privacy of their own home while enjoying what might be delicately described as self-gratification. In the cold light of day, the average arousal rate was 35%. However, this rocketed to 52% when the men assessed the images in a private, aroused state. This was a massive 17% point increase, driven by the heat of the moment. The Perils of Procrastination In order to see how we can combat empathy gaps, we must first look at the perils of procrastination, that dreadful urge you suffer when you know there is work to be done but put it off for as long as possible. Imagine you have been hired as a proofreader for a set of essays, each about ten pages long. You have three options. You can set your own deadlines and turn in each essay separately. You can hand everything in at the last minute before a final deadline, or you can go with a predetermined set of deadlines for each essay. Which would you choose? Most people, myself included, of course, go with handing everything in at the last moment. After all, we reason, I'll do the work at my pace and then hand it all in whenever I like. Unfortunately, this decision ignores our tendency to procrastinate, something book editors will be all too familiar with. While we all start off with the best of intentions to space out the work evenly, inevitably other things come up. Our best laid plans are disrupted, and we end up doing all the work at the last minute. Yet, psychologists have found that imposed deadlines are the most effective. Researchers split people into three groups randomly and assigned them one of the conditions outlined above. Those who were told they had to follow equally spaced deadlines found the most errors, yet handed their work in with the least delay. The group who chose their own set of deadlines found fewer errors and were nearly twice as late handing in their reports. However, the worst-performing group was those who were allowed to wait until the final deadline to hand everything in. This group found far fewer errors than the other two groups, and were nearly three times later in handing in their reports than those who worked to equally spaced deadlines. This experiment provides a possible weapon to place in our arsenal against the behavioral pitfall of empathy gaps and procrastination. It's called pre-commitment. The Power of Pre-Commitment So what can we as investors do to prevent ourselves from falling into these emotional time-travel pitfalls? One simple answer is to prepare and pre-commit. Investors should learn to follow the seven P's. Perfect planning and preparation prevent piss-poor performance. That is to say, we should do our investment research when we are in a cold, rational state, and when nothing much is happening in the markets, and then pre-commit to following our own analysis and prepared action steps. Sir John Templeton, legendary investor and mutual fund pioneer, provides us with a perfect example of this process in action. He was well known for saying, the time of maximum pessimism is the best time to buy, and the time of maximum optimism is the best time to sell. Few would disagree with the sentiment. However, when everyone is busy despondently selling, it can be hard to stand against the tide and buy. This difficulty is the very definition of an empathy gap. Sir John's great-niece Lauren C. Templeton provides us with the strategy her uncle used to overcome this obstacle in her book, Investing the Templeton Way. 
She writes, There are clear psychological challenges to maintaining a clear head during a sharp sell-off. One way Uncle Zhang used to handle this was to make his buy decisions well before a sell-off occurred. During his years managing the Templeton funds, he always kept a wish list of securities representing companies that he believed were well-run but priced too high. He often had standing orders with his brokers to purchase those wish list stocks if, for some reason, the market sold off enough to drag their prices down to levels at which he considered them a bargain. This prime example of pre-commitment in the face of a known empathy gap is exactly what you should seek to emulate in your own investment strategies. Sir John knew that on the day the market or stock was down, say, 40%, he wouldn't have the discipline to execute a buy. But by placing buy orders well below the market price, it becomes easier to buy when faced with despondent selling. This is a simple but highly effective way of removing emotion from the situation. Chapter 2. Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Market? Reinvesting When Terrified Let's play a simple game. At the start of the game, you are given $20 and told the following. The game will last 20 rounds. At the start of each round, you will be asked if you would like to invest. If you say yes, the cost will be $1. A fair coin will then be flipped. If it comes up heads, you will receive $2.50. If it comes up tails, you will lose your dollar. Now, there are two things we know about this game. First, and perhaps most obvious, it is in your best interest to invest in all rounds due to the asymmetric nature of the payoff. That is to say, you stand to make more than you lose in each round. The expected value per round is $1.25, giving a total expected value to the game of $25. In fact, there is only a 13% chance that you'd end up with total earnings of less than $20 which is what you'd have if you chose not to invest at all and just kept the initial endowment. The second thing we know is that the outcome in a prior round shouldn't impact your decision to invest in the next round. After all, the coin has no memory. However, when experimenters studied this game, they found some unusual behavior. They asked three different groups to play the game. The first group was very unusual. They had a very specific form of brain damage. These individuals couldn't feel fear. The second group of players were people like you and me, ostensibly without any evidence of brain damage. The third group consisted of people who had brain damage but in parts of their brains unrelated to the processing of emotion, and hence fear. Who do you think fared best? Not surprisingly, it was the group with the inability to feel fear. They invested in 84% of rounds, whereas the so-called normals invested in 58% of rounds, and the group with non-fear-related brain damage invested 61% of the time. The group who couldn't feel fear displayed their real edge after rounds in which they had lost money. Following such rounds, they invested more than 85% of the time. Pretty optimal behavior. This was a huge contrast with the other two groups, who displayed seriously suboptimal behavior. In fact, so bad was the pain-slash-fear of losing even one dollar that these groups invested less than 40% of the time after a round in which they had suffered a loss. You might think that, as time went on, people would learn from their mistakes and hence get better at this game. Unfortunately, the evidence suggests a very different picture. When the experimenters broke the 20 rounds down into four groups of five games, they found that those who couldn't feel fear invested a similar percentage of the time across all four groups. However, the normals started off by investing in about 70% of the rounds in the first five games, but ended up investing in less than 50% of the final five games. The longer the game went on, the worse their decision-making became. You may be wondering why I am telling you this story. Well, it naturally parallels the behaviors investors exhibit during bear markets. 
The evidence above suggests that fear causes people to ignore bargains when they are available in the market, especially if they have previously suffered a loss. The longer they find themselves in this position, the worse their decision-making appears to become. Of course, this game is designed so that taking risk yields good results. If the game were reversed and taking risk ended in poor outcomes, the normals would outperform the players who can't feel fear. However, the version of the game outlined above is a good analogy to bear markets with cheap valuations, where future returns are likely to be good. Brain Drain and Performance A recent study explored the same game that is outlined above, but measured people based on their degree of reliance upon X-system thinking. For those interested in the testing format, they used a self-report approach. People were measured on the basis of how much they agreed or disagreed with eight statements, such as, I tend to use my heart as a guide for my actions. I like to rely on my intuitive impressions. And, I don't have a very good sense of intuition, rather than a more clinical approach like the CRT that we used in Chapter 1. It was surmised that if the depletion of mental resources such as self-control is a problem, then those who rely more on their X-system should suffer poorer decision-making when they have been forced to use up their store of self-regulatory ability. To put it another way, those who use their quick and dirty thinking systems, X-system thinking, will run out of self-control faster than those who are more inclined to use their logical thinking systems, C-system thinking. In order to achieve this, one group of players was subjected to a Stroop test. The Stroop test will be familiar to fans of brain-training games, although they may not know its name. It presents the names of colors, and players have to name the color in which the name of the color is written, rather than the name of the color. Thus the word red may appear in blue ink, and the correct response is blue. It thus takes concentration and willpower to complete the Stroop test. When the game was played with a pretest, that is, without the Stroop test, both those who relied on X and C system processing performed in the same fashion. They invested about 70% of the time, still distinctly suboptimal. However, the results were very different when people were unable to control their own fear and emotions, that is, after the Stroop test. Those with a very strong reliance on their C-system continued to do well, investing 78% of the time. However, those who relied heavily on their X-system suffered particularly badly. They invested only 49% of the time. This is yet more evidence of the dangers of relying upon our own abilities to defeat our decision-making demons. The Cure for Temporary Paralysis In March 2009, the S&P 500 swooned to its lowest levels in a decade, and the market had declined some 57% since its peak in late 2007. I watched as markets seemed to be near meltdown. No scenario seemed to be pessimistic enough to be beyond belief among investors. How did this make me feel? Actually, very excited. Not because I have some sick perversion that means I enjoy a crisis, although I may well, but rather because markets were getting cheap. As I wrote in Mine Matters in early March 2009, buy when it's cheap, if not then, when? The basic argument was simple enough. Markets were at levels of valuation that we simply hadn't seen for 20 to 30 years. Of course, valuation isn't a fail-safe reason for buying equities. Cheap stocks can always get cheaper. But in March, I was convinced that they offered a great buying opportunity for long-term investors. I wasn't alone in thinking these thoughts. Jeremy Grantham, chief strategist of GMO, penned the following. As this crisis climaxes, formerly reasonable people will start to predict the end of the world, armed with plenty of terrifying and accurate data that will serve to reinforce the wisdom of your caution. Every decline will enhance the beauty of cash until, as some of us experienced in 1974, 
terminal paralysis sets in. Those who are over-invested will become catatonic and just sit and pray. Those few who look brilliant, oozing cash, will not want to easily give up their brilliance. So almost everyone is watching and waiting with their inertia beginning to set like concrete. Typically those with a lot of cash will miss a very large chunk of the market recovery. There is only one cure for terminal paralysis. You absolutely must have a battle plan for reinvestment and stick to it. Since every action must overcome paralysis, what I recommend is a few large steps, not many small ones. A single giant step at the low would be nice. But without holding a signed contract with the devil, several big moves would be safer. It is particularly important to have a clear definition of what it will take for you to be fully invested. Without a similar program, be prepared for your committee's enthusiasm to invest, and your own, for that matter, to fall with the market. You must get them to agree now, quickly, before rigor mortis sets in. Finally, be aware that the market does not turn when it sees light at the end of the tunnel. It turns when all looks black, but just a subtle shade less black than the day before. Similarly, Seth Clareman, the head of Baupost and value investor extraordinaire, wrote, The chaos is so extreme, the panic selling so urgent, that there is almost no possibility that sellers are acting on superior information. Indeed, in situation after situation, it seems clear that investment fundamentals do not factor into their decision-making at all. While it is always tempting to try and time the market and wait for the bottom to be reached, as if it would be obvious when it arrived, such a strategy proved over the years to be deeply flawed. Historically, little volume transacts at the bottom or on the way back up, and competition from other buyers will be much greater when the markets settle down and the economy begins to recover. Moreover, the price recovery from a bottom can be very swift. Therefore, an investor should put money to work amidst the throes of a bear market, appreciating that things will likely get worse before they get better. The advice that Grantham and Clareman so timely offered is, of course, yet another example of the power of pre-commitment that we saw in Chapter 1. The battle plan for reinvestment is a schedule of pre-commitments that acknowledges both the empathy gap we will likely encounter and also helps remove the fear-induced terminal paralysis that we are likely to be suffering. While on holiday a few years ago, I asked a local for directions. His less-than-helpful response was, I wouldn't start from here. However, when it comes to investing, we can actually make a difference in our starting point. As Clareman further notes, One of our strategies for maintaining rational thinking at all times is to attempt to avoid the extreme stresses that lead to poor decision-making. We have often described our techniques for accomplishing this. Willingness to hold cash in the absence of compelling investment opportunity, a strong selling discipline, significant hedging activity, and avoidance of recourse leverage, among others. By removing some of the sources of forced decisions during difficult times, Klarman attempts to reduce the vulnerability to empathy gaps and terror-driven poor decisions. Learn from his example and try to remove the drivers of forced decisions from your portfolios. Chapter 3. Always look on the bright side of life. But why should I own this investment? Let me ask you three questions. Don't worry, they aren't as tricky as those we encountered in the introduction. 1. Are you above average when you drive a car? 2. Are you above average at your job? And 3. Are you above average when you make love? If you are like the vast majority of people, you will have answered each of these three questions in the affirmative. Indeed, when I ask for a show of hands, there is usually one gentleman who raises both hands in response to question three. I am personally convinced this is extreme overconfidence, but we will leave that for the next chapter. Optimism seems ingrained in the human psyche. 
At the end of Monty Python's Life of Brian, those hanging on crucifixes begin singing, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. It would appear that the vast majority of people subscribe to this particular view of the world. When I asked a sample of more than 600 professional fund managers how many of them were above average at their jobs, an impressive 74% responded in the affirmative. Indeed, many of them wrote comments such as, I know everyone thinks they are, but I really am. Similarly, some 70% of analysts think they are better than their peers at forecasting earnings. Yet, the very same analysts had 91% of their recommendations as either buys or holds in February 2008. This trade is not unique to the investment industry. When teaching, I generally find that 80% of students believe they will finish in the top 50% of my class. This tendency to overrate our abilities is amplified by the illusion of control. We think we can influence an outcome. The illusion of control crops up in some odd places. For instance, people will pay four times more for a lottery ticket if they can pick the numbers, as opposed to a ticket with randomly selected numbers, as if the act of the person picking the numbers makes them more likely to occur. Thus, people often mistake randomness for control. For example, when asked to predict the outcome of 30 coin tosses, which were actually rigged so that everyone guessed correctly half the time, those who got their early guesses right rated themselves as much better guessers than those who had started badly. In fact, the illusion of control seems most likely to occur when lots of choices are available. When you have early success at the task, as per the coin tossing, the task you are undertaking is familiar to you, the amount of information is high, and you have a personal involvement. To me, those sound awfully like conditions we encounter when investing. Optimism and the X System Earlier I mentioned that even if you manage to answer all three of the cognitive reflection task questions correctly, you are still likely to be subject to several biases. Overoptimism is one of these cognitive ability-resistant biases. Optimism seems to be the default state and embedded within the X system of processing information. We already know that the X system is more likely to be used when a person feels pressured by time. So, if optimism is indeed part of the X system, we should be able to coax it out by putting people through their paces against the clock. This is exactly what psychologists have done. Participants were placed in front of a computer screen and shown statements about future life events. They could press either a key labeled, not me, or a key labeled, me. Subjects were told how commonly the events occurred in the general population. The event appeared on the screen for either one or ten seconds. Six positive and six negative life events were used. When allowed time to consider the life events, participants said that four of the six positive life events would happen to them, but only 2.7 of the negative life events would happen to them. When placed under time pressure, the number of positive life events rose to 4.75, while the number of negative life events fell to 2.4. This pattern is consistent with the idea that optimism is a default response. Further evidence of the deep-seated nature of our optimism is found in recent work by neuroscientists. They have been busy scanning people's brains while asking them to consider both good and bad events in their past and future. When imagining positive future events relative to negative ones, two key areas of the brain showed increased activation, the rostral anterior cingulated cortex and the amygdala. Both of these areas are associated with emotional processing and are generally held to be neural correlates of the X system. Nature versus Nurture Effectively, the sources of optimism can be split into those related to nature and those related to nurture. So let's start with nature. Many of the biases we have today presumably had some evolutionary advantage, although some may be spandrels, to borrow Stephen Jay Gould's expression, 
for the byproducts of evolution. What possible role could optimism have played in our evolution as a species? Lionel Tiger argued in his book, Optimism, the Biology of Hope, 1979, that when early man left the forests and became hunters, many of them suffered injury and death. Tiger suggests that humans tend to abandon tasks associated with negative consequences. So it was biologically adaptive for humans to develop a sense of optimism. After all, it must have needed a great deal of courage to take on a mastodon, a very large prehistoric elephant-like creature. Frankly, not too many pessimists would even bother. Tiger also argues that when we are injured, our bodies release endorphins. Endorphins generally have two properties. They have an analgesic property, to reduce pain, and they produce feelings of euphoria. Tiger suggests that it was biologically adaptive for our ancestors to experience positive emotions instead of negative emotions when they were injured because it would reinforce their tendency to hunt in the future. Optimism may also endow us with some other benefits. Psychologists have found that optimists seem to cope far better and survive much longer when faced with dire news over illness or other problems than pessimists do. So optimism may well be a great life strategy. However, hope isn't a good investment strategy. Ben Graham was well aware of the dangers of over-optimism. He noted, Observation over many years has taught us that the chief losses to investors come from the purchase of low-quality securities at times of favorable business conditions. The purchasers view the current good earnings as equivalent to earning power, and assume that prosperity is synonymous with safety. So much for nature. Nurture also helps to generate the generally rose-tinted view of life. Psychologists have often documented a self-serving bias, whereby people are prone to act in ways that are supportive of their own interests. But as Warren Buffett warns, never ask a barber if you need a haircut. Auditors provide a good example of this bias. 139 professional auditors were given five different auditing cases to examine. The cases concerned a variety of controversial aspects of accounting. For instance, one covered the recognition of intangibles, one covered revenue recognition, and one concerned capitalization versus expensing of expenditures. The auditors were told the cases were independent of each other. The auditors were randomly assigned to either work for the company or work for an outside investor who was considering investing in the company in question. The auditors who were told they were working for the company were 31% more likely to accept the various dubious accounting moves than those who were told they worked for the outside investor. So much for an impartial outsider. And this was in the post-Enron age. We see this kind of self-serving bias rear its head regularly when it comes to investing. For instance, stockbroker research generally conforms to three self-serving principles. Rule number one. All news is good news. If the news is bad, it can always get better. Rule number two. Everything is always cheap, even if you have to make up new valuation methodologies. And rule number three. Assertion trumps evidence. Never let the facts get in the way of a good story. Remembering that these rules govern much of what passes for research on Wall Street can help protect you from falling victim to this aspect of self-serving bias. The most recent financial crisis provides plenty of examples of self-serving bias at work, the most egregious of which is the behavior of the ratings agencies. They pretty much perjured themselves in pursuit of profit. The conflicts of interest within such organizations are clear. After all, it is the issuer who pays for the rating, which, as with the auditors above, makes the ratings agency predisposed to favoring them. In the housing crisis, they seem to adopt some deeply flawed quant models which even cursory reflection should have revealed were dangerous to use. But use them they did, and so a lot of Sub-investment-grade loans were suddenly transformed, as if by financial alchemy, into AAA-rated securities. 
beating over optimism. What can we do to defend ourselves against over optimism? We must learn to think critically and become more skeptical. We should get used to asking, Must I believe this? rather than the far more common, Can I believe this? As the philosopher George Santayana wrote, Skepticism is the chastity of the intellect, and it is shameful to surrender it too soon or to the first comer. These words hold as true in investing as they do in life generally. Indeed, most of the best investors appear to ask themselves a very different default question from the rest of us. Many of these investors generally run concentrated portfolios, with the default question being, why should I own this investment? Whereas for fund managers who are obsessed with tracking error and career risk, the default question changes to, why shouldn't I own this stock? This subtle distinction in default questions can have a dramatic impact on performance. Spencer Davidson of General American Investors recalls, An early mentor of mine started out during the Depression and used to always say we were in the rejection business, that we're paid to be cynical, and that a big part of success in investing is knowing how to say no. Before we leave the topic of over-optimism, it is worth noting that one group of people actually see the world the way it really is the clinically depressed. They have no illusions about their own abilities. It is this realistic viewpoint that tends to lead them to depression. For instance, when put in a room with a light which comes on 75% of the time that you touch the switch and 75% of the time when you don't touch the switch, most people come out saying that they have a high level of control over the light. However, the clinically depressed come out and say they had virtually no control over the light. Perhaps this leaves investors with an unenviable choice. Either be depressed and see the world the way it is, or be happy and deluded. Personally, I guess the best solution may be to be clinically depressed at work, but happy and deluded when you go home. Well, it works for me anyway. Chapter 4. Why Does Anyone Listen to These Guys? Stop Listening to the Experts Okay, it's pop quiz time again. Following are ten questions. I'd like you to give a high and a low estimate for each question. Make sure you are 90% sure the high and low estimates you give will surround the actual answer. Then, after you write down your answers... We'll see how you did. 1. What was Martin Luther King's age at death? Give me your low answer and your high answer, with a 90% confidence range. Number 2. What's the length of the Nile River in miles? Give me your low answer and your high answer. 3. What's the number of countries in OPEC? Low, high. Four. What's the number of books in the Old Testament? Low, high. Five. What's the diameter of the moon in miles? Low, high. Six. What's the weight of an empty Boeing 747 in pounds? Low, high. 7. Give me the year of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart's birth. Low, high. 8. What's the gestation period of an Asian elephant in days? Low, high. 9. What is the air distance from London to Tokyo in miles? Low? High? And finally, number 10. What is the deepest known point in the ocean in feet? Low? High?
Okay, let's look at the answers. Martin Luther King's age at death was 39. The length of the Nile River in miles, 4,187. The number of countries in OPEC, 13. The number of books in the Old Testament, 39. The diameter of the moon in miles, 2,160. The weight of an empty Boeing 747, 390,000 pounds.